Take a Bible and open to Luke chapter 16. If you're reading the New Testament with us this year, you know that we've read Luke 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 this week. I hope you're tracking along with us as we read together. Our passage this morning is going to come from the very end of Luke 16. I think it's a good thing this morning that we just sang about God's goodness. And I like the repetition of that song at the end so that we say it over and over and over and over again because what we're about to talk about this morning is something in the Bible that makes many people question and doubt and have concerns about the goodness of God and the love of God and the kindness of God. And so it's good that we have moved into this passage with the reminder that God is good. If you're reading through Luke and you make it to Luke 16... You are out on the tail end of Jesus' public ministry. You're getting really close to the end of Jesus' life. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he is still teaching the crowds in parables. And as Jesus is teaching the crowds and the disciples and all of the folks who are clamoring around him, as he's teaching in parables, there are a number of different responses that are being made to Jesus. You could look at the disciples, the 12, and Jesus' close inner circle of followers, and you could say these guys and gals are listening and they're taking it in and they're trying to understand. They're having trouble seeing the big picture and putting all the pieces together, but they're trying and they're learning and they're doing their best to track along with what Jesus is saying. Then you have the crowds. The crowds at times are completely bewildered about the things that Jesus is saying. They just don't have a category for what he's talking about. And at times, they're deeply offended by what Jesus is saying. There are moments where they have a a moment of clarity, and they understand exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make, and they don't like it, and they're offended, and they're hurt by what Jesus says. Then you have the Pharisees, and Luke tells us something very, very interesting about the Pharisees. If you would just look at the middle of Luke 16, verse 14, 15, and 16, Luke tells us in the middle of all of these parables that Jesus is teaching, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, by the way, heard all of these things. They heard Jesus teaching in parables. And they ridiculed him. They mocked him. They made jokes about him. They laughed at him and they encouraged other people to laugh at him. And he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus. They heard him teach. And the reason they ridiculed him is that they loved money. They cared about their reputations and they wanted to exalt themselves. And there's a haunting phrase right in the middle of the verses we just read. Verse 15 where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says to them, God knows your hearts. You understand that is just as true today as it was the day Jesus spoke it. 
I don't think we have any Pharisees, at least openly card-carrying Pharisees in the room this morning. But God knows your heart. He knows your heart. The Pharisees had everyone fooled, but God knew their heart. God knows your heart. I have no idea why you are here this morning, what your motivation is in coming. I don't know the struggles that you brought into this room. I don't know the anxieties that you're carrying. I don't know the, the questions that you're wrestling with. I don't know why you're here. And I don't know how you feel about the things that we've sung. I don't know how you feel about the scriptures. But I know this, God knows your heart. And you can fool all the people around you. You can fool everybody in this room. But you won't fool God. He knows your heart this morning. There's a verse that comes right after that section and right before our passage. It's Luke 16, 18. It seems like a throwaway verse. As you're reading through Luke, you may have come to it and thought, why in the world is that verse about divorce and remarriage stuck in right here? It's just sort of like Luke didn't have any better place to put it, so he just stuck it in there. It's not a throwaway verse. And it's not a random verse. It is a verse that reveals the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts as well as well as their willingness to play games with the Word of God. They knew what the Scripture said about marriage. They knew it. And yet they come to Jesus and they want to play games and they want to be cute with the Word of God and they want to twist it and turn it and mold it and shape it so that they can justify themselves. That verse is just a reminder. Here's one issue that shows you just how hard their hearts are and how willing they are to play around with the truth of God's word. Jesus in this passage is warning the Pharisees. They're in dangerous territory. If your heart is hard towards the Lord and if you're willing to take his word where it's clear and twisted and shape it to your own devices, there's a warning in this passage for you. Here's the big idea. It's very, very simple. If you want to escape the horrors of hell, your heart must be transformed by God's Word. If you want to escape the horrors of hell, your heart has to undergo a transformation. And the only way that that transformation can take place is by the Word of God doing a work in your life. The Spirit of God taking the Word of God and transforming your heart. So if your copy of the Scriptures is open, let's read our passage. Luke chapter 16. I'll begin in verse 19. I'll read through the end of the chapter. The Bible says this, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, 
for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted and you are here in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we have reminded ourselves through song that you are good. You are good. You are good. Lord, the Bible also describes you as righteous, holy, just, angry with sin. And Lord, as we think about this parable from the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to understand it is intended to be a warning to people with hard hearts. It's intended to be a warning to people who would play games with your word. And so, Lord, we do not want to have hard hearts this morning, and we certainly do not want to play games with the Scriptures. We want to sit under the authority of your Word, and we want to be transformed by the power of your Word. So we pray that you would do this work in us, even this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I saw a video this week on the internet. The video was of a ranch up in the panhandle of Texas called the Turkey Track Ranch. 80,000 acres under one fence. It's up for sale for the very first time in history. The same family has owned it for generations. They're putting it up for sale. Some of you may be interested. The price, $200 million dollars. And this can be your second home, your home away from home. $200 million. Look, the second service, you, you guys, this is usually a bigger service. But I need to tell you that in the first service, we had a quorum for a business meeting. And so we came to order, and I made a motion that the church buy this ranch as a vacation property for the pastor And someone seconded the motion. And we had like four finance team members. I think it's official. I think it's done. I think we're putting in an offer this afternoon. So they're selling this ranch. The video is amazing. This is not like you put your house for sale and they throw some pictures on Zillow. This is like hire a movie production company to come film the ranch. And they put this thing together. And I watched this video. It's about eight minutes long. And I watched it. It's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And while I'm watching it, 
a movie scene comes to my mind. In the movie scene, this may seem strange to you, but this is the movie scene I thought of. The movie scene was from the Field of Dreams. And the very end of the Field of Dreams, when John Kinsella, who is young, is meeting with Ray Kinsella, his son, and the timeline's all mixed up because you've seen the movie. And John looks at Ray as they're standing in this baseball field in the middle of the cornfield. He looks at his son and he says, is this heaven? And you remember what Ray says? He says, no, it's Iowa. And his dad sort of shakes his head and he looks around and he says, man, I could have swore this was heaven. And that's what I kept thinking when I was watching this video. I thought, that's heaven right there. It is an amazing, amazing piece of property. And I thought, this is just absolutely glorious. They have filmed heaven and they're trying to sell it for $200 million. An absolutely beautiful piece of land. Now, I understand, and I hope you understand, that your thoughts about heaven don't actually control what heaven's going to be like. We say that all the time. Well, my idea of heaven, well, my idea of heaven, it doesn't matter what your idea of heaven is. It really doesn't matter what my idea of heaven is. Guess what? It also doesn't matter what your idea of hell is or what anyone else's idea of hell is. Heaven and hell do not conform to what we want them or think that they will be like. And yet we talk like that all the time, don't we? We talk about something being heavenly. We say, oh, it was heaven. I got to go to the beach, Chris said. I got to go to the beach, and it rained, and it was beautiful, and the ocean. Oh, you say, oh, it was just heavenly. And you know that we do the same thing with hell. We go through something like the dust storm we had this last week and the dirt blows and the sun disappears and you say, oh, that was like a hellish dirt storm. It was terrible. And we use heaven and hell to describe all sorts of things in our lives, things that we like or things that we don't like. And we say, oh, this was wonderful. It was like heaven. Or we say, oh, this was just terrible. And we use hell to sort of describe it. And what I want you to understand is that all the ways that we tend to talk about heaven and hell tend to sell both of them short. All the great things that we say are like heaven or all the terrible things that we say are like hell, they tend to just sort of reduce both of them down to be less than what they really are. I don't know if I can prove this, but one of the things I would say to you as we talk about heaven and hell is that more than any other topic in the Bible, any other area of doctrine or theology, our ideas of hell and heaven have been watered down and reduced and diluted by history, by language, the difference in words between Greek and Hebrew and English and where all of our terminology that we use today, where it comes from, by culture and things that we believe to be true, by things we see in the media or things we see online. Our ideas about heaven and hell just tend to be watered-down versions of what the Bible actually says about these places. And I want you to note the terminology here. I think it's important on the outset that we just talk about terminology. If I asked you, let's say next week, to give a summary of this story, say, hey, remember last week 
talked about the ranch, talked about heaven and hell, talked about the parable. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And I said, tell me the story just real quick. Just give me the summary. You'd say, okay, let me think. There was a rich guy. I don't remember his name. That's good. He wasn't named in the parable. Okay, there was a rich guy. And then there was a guy named Lazarus. And they both died. And one of them, Lazarus, went to heaven and the rich guy went to hell. That's how we would probably tell the story, but it's not exactly what Jesus says in this passage. And I want to be clear on terminology on the outset. Just because our ideas of heaven and hell tend to be so diluted and watered down, let's talk about what Jesus actually says here. What he says is that Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. If you have an old King James Version, it might say Abraham's bosom. So the the angels carry Lazarus to Abraham's side. Then there's the rich man. He dies. He's buried. He's in Hades. So we're not talking directly about heaven or hell here. Those aren't the terms Jesus used. He talks about Abraham's side, and he talks about Hades. This is a distinction that I want you to understand. It's what theologians would call a distinction between an intermediate state and the final state. And I'm a visual guy. I like to see things spelled out, charted out, mapped out. So let's think about it this way. The intermediate state. When your body dies, you understand that your soul lives on in a sense. And your soul, when your body dies, will live on in one of two intermediate states. One of them is called Abraham's side. The New Testament also refers to it as paradise. You remember Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Sometimes the New Testament just calls it heaven generically. It's one of the intermediate states. The other one, Jesus uses the term Hades. An Old Testament term that you'll find over and over and over again is Sheol. This is an intermediate state. Your body dies, your soul lives on, and it goes to one of these two places. It's not our final state. Theologians would talk about our final state, our eternal state. Our final state is the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes it's confusing, but it's just called heaven. See, I thought the intermediate state was called heaven. It is. They're both called that. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God. And then there's the eternal state for unbelievers and for the wicked. Gehenna, hell, the lake of fire. Here's what separates the intermediate state from the eternal state. It's the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. It's the one great event that all of human history is moving towards even today. Jesus Christ coming back and the dead being raised. So you understand there's this intermediate state. For believers, for the righteous, it's Abraham's side, or paradise, or heaven. For non-believers, for the wicked, it's Hades. This term, Abraham's side, it makes you think of the Old Testament saying, so-and-so died and he was gathered to his fathers. He was gathered to his people. There's a reunion that takes place. This idea of Sheol or Hades is the Greek word for the underworld. And it's just the idea of the grave or death. And there these souls live on while they're awaiting the final judgment. And when Christ comes back, there is the final judgment of all who have ever lived. And at that final judgment, 
all people will enter an eternal state. And here's your options. New heavens and earth, the kingdom of God, or Gehenna hell and the lake of fire. We could make distinctions about the intermediate state and the eternal state. That's a a lesson for a different Sunday. There are some distinctions that can be made. But I don't want to talk about the distinctions. I want to talk about the similarities. And moving forward, I'm just going to use the generic heaven or hell because that's how we tend to talk in everyday language. And we're going to talk about what this parable teaches us about what happens when you die. About what happens in the next life. About what happens in eternity. And the first question that we want to answer is the question, what does this parable teach us about hell? Here's the first lesson. Hell is a real, note the punctuation, real, comma, horrific place. I'm not saying to you that it's really horrific, although that's true. I'm saying to you, it's a real place, and it's a horrific place. Over the last couple of years, you've heard me several times reference a study. In 2020, Lifeway and Ligonier teamed up. They did something called the State of Theology Study. They surveyed Americans, just a cross-section of Americans, about what they believe about the Bible, about God, about salvation, about all sorts of uh, topics pertaining to the Christian faith. In that study, only 34% of Americans strongly agreed with the statement, hell is a real place where certain people will be punished forever. That's the statement. Do you agree or disagree? Only 34% strongly agreed. There's another little group that said, we somewhat agree, and that bumps the number up a little bit. There's a group of people in the middle that said, I have no idea, and then there's people who said, well, I I somewhat disagree or I strongly disagree. Only 34% of Americans said, yes, I strongly agree with that basic, simple, generic statement about hell, that it's a real place where certain people will be punished forever. Can I tell you something just from personal experience? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. I'm just going to be honest with you. In my life, and particularly in my experience as a pastor, I have met very few people who think that they actually have a loved one who is in hell. Very few. Most of the time, people just tend to talk and assume that they lived, they died, now they're in a better place. Very few have any sort of concept that one of their loved ones might have lived and died and now is in hell. What I have found to be true in dealing with people, talking with people, counseling with people, is that many people tend to get really serious about hell when they see something horrific happen and they can point a finger at someone who's responsible and say, that's the kind of person who belongs in hell. Maybe it's something that happens not just 
in the world or it's on the news, but it's something that specifically happens to their family. They're hurt in some way and they begin to say, well, this person did this thing to us and now they're ready to be the judge, jury, and executioner that consigns someone to eternity in hell. But most people just tend to talk and live as if they don't have anyone who is close to them who might possibly be in hell. You understand it's a real place. Jesus isn't just talking fairy tales here. It's a real place. You understand there will be people who go there. In fact, if you listen to the New Testament, there will be many who go there. Jesus talks about a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. Listen, if you're going to read through the Gospels like we've done this year, you're going to have to come to grips with what Jesus believed about hell. And it's just sort of a take it or leave it deal. You can say, you know what? Jesus, Son of God, rose from the dead. He probably knows what he's talking about. Or you can say, I think I know better than what Jesus said. Because Jesus believed that hell was a real place. He believed that it was a horrific place. In this parable, verse 23, he says it's a place of torment. Verse 24, he describes it as a place of flames. Verse 25, he says it's a place of anguish. Now look, theologians can sort those terms out any which way they want to sort them out. It doesn't sound like a nice place. It sounds like a horrific place. And it's a real place. Here's the second thing you learn about hell. You can't escape through learning, religion, or wealth. Learning lots of Bible facts won't keep you out of hell. The Pharisees knew lots of Bible facts. Lots of them. It was not uncommon for a Pharisee to have memorized large sections of the Old Testament. Just to memorize it in mass. They were learned men. And Jesus is warning them about hell. Religion will not save you from hell. The Pharisees were very religious. I know that we hear the word Pharisee and we think, oh yeah, those are the bad guys. But in Jesus' day, they were the church-going pillars of the community. Very religious. Religion will not keep you out of hell. Nor will money. Jesus says, the Pharisees who loved money, very religious, very educated, loved money, did well, he's warning them about the dangers of hell. The same warnings are true today. You've got to hear them and I've got to hear them. Learning things won't get you out of hell. Attending religious activities won't save you from hell. Making lots of money, and guess what? Giving lots of money won't save you from hell. Lesson number three. This one's important. No one repents in hell. No one repents in hell. Take your Bible and let's just look at a few verses. Luke 16. What was the rich man like before he died? How does Jesus describe it? Verse 19, he says, he wore fancy clothes, 
and he feasted sumptuously every day, that's telling you he had an abundance. He's not just getting by. He's not just upper middle class. He had an abundance. He wore the nicest clothes. He ate the best food, and he ate a lot of it. And if you keep reading, verse 20 and 21, he's completely indifferent to the plight of Lazarus. He could not care less about Lazarus. Completely indifferent. What was he like after he died? Verse 24 says he doesn't like the agony in Hades. And notice in verse 24, you get a glimpse of his heart. He's still barking out orders like he's the boss. I mean, that's what he was used to in this world. Rich, nice clothes, lots of food, servants, tells people what to do. He says, jump, they say, how high? Here he is in Hades. He's still trying to tell people what to do. He's trying to tell Abraham what to do. Abraham, I need you to make a phone call for me. I know you're probably busy, but I'm a rich man. Go make this phone call. And what's the phone call? He wants Abraham to send Lazarus to bring him a drink of water. I know it's not football season, but you know the little guys that run around in an NFL game and carry the Gatorade bottles? And the big, strong football players just open their mouth? And it's somebody's job to squirt the water in there? That's their job? Water boy? That's what he wants Lazarus to do. Hey, over here. Bring the water. Abraham. Abraham, send Lazarus with some water for me. And then just a few verses later, verse 27, he's still telling Abraham what to do. Abraham, I need you to send somebody to my brothers. Send somebody back from the dead. And Abraham sort of tries to straighten him out, and what does he do? He argues with Abraham. you got to see how this is peak hubris, peak pride, peak ego. The rich man, who is no longer rich, by the way, is in Hades. And he is arguing of all people to argue with, with Abraham, about how salvation works. Abraham, who was a sinful man, Genesis 15, 6, who believed the Lord, and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham knew how salvation works. You put your faith in the Lord, you trust in His promises, you rest in His Word, you believe that He will do and has done what He says He will do and has done, and God gives you the gift of righteousness. That's how you get to paradise. Not by your own goodness, but by God giving you righteousness. Abraham knows how it works. He's there. And here's the rich man saying, No, 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 Abraham, you're wrong. Send someone back from the dead. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Listen to them. Abraham, you are mistaken. Send someone back from the dead and they will listen. He's arguing with Abraham. 
This is like the person who goes to their doctor and their doctor diagnoses the issue and the person says, you know, doc, I don't know if you're right. I got on Google this week and looked some stuff up and I think I know. And the doctor says, okay. This is like a person who is arrested in visiting with their lawyer saying to the lawyer, Hey, good news, I watched an episode of Law and Order last week, and I know exactly what we need to do. This is like somebody who has filed for bankruptcy saying to Jeff Bezos, you really ought to diversify your funds a little bit more. A little too... A little too over-invested in these areas. He's not going to listen to that person. This is your uncle who's been divorced seven times telling you how to handle a marriage conflict. You listen to that uncle and you say, okay, in this ear, out the other. Who are you? Who is the rich man in Hades to tell Abraham in paradise how salvation works? He hasn't changed a bit. He's not repentant. He is completely consumed with pride and ego. Listen, this is what you find in Hades. This is what you'll find in hell in the end. People who have been completely given over to their sin. Not people who are humble. Not people who are contrite. Not people who are remorseful. Not people who feel sorry about their sin. Not people who regret what they've done. But people who have been completely given over to their sin. And all they can do is to keep plunging ahead. In rebellion against God. You will not find people in hell who are contrite. Remorseful. Repentant. Sorry. You will find people with inflated egos. Arguing bickering, barking out orders, expecting everyone else to do their bidding. No one repents in hell. It's not a place of repentance. Fourthly, hell involves a separation, a final separation. And I know we're talking about the intermediate state here, but there's a clear distinction between Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus, Abraham's side. Rich man, Hades. Those are your options. There's two. There is no option C that says none of the above. There's two options. Abraham's side, paradise, heaven, or Hades. That's it. Heaven, hell. New creation, new heavens, new earth, Gehenna, lake of fire. It's two options. That's it. There's no purgatory, there's no third middle way, there's no limbo, there's nothing in the middle. There are two options. And at the moment of death, there is a separation between the wicked and the righteous. And by that, I don't mean sinners and not sinners. I mean, there's a separation between people who have not trusted God's promises about His Son, Jesus Christ, the wicked, and those righteous who have trusted God's promises about His Son, Jesus Christ. They have believed the good news of the gospel and it's been credited to them as righteousness. There's a separation that takes place. It's not the only place in the Bible you read about this separation. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, says this. 
is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's it. You live once, you die once, then you face a judgment. And you go to one of these intermediate states, and guess what? At the end, when Christ comes back, there will be a final judgment, and you will enter one of these corresponding eternal states. Look what he says in verse 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. There's no crossing that chasm. Ancient mythology is filled with rumors and legends and hopes that somehow you could sneak across that chasm. It's not how it works. Don't put your hope in urban legend and myth and rumor. Abraham says in the parable, there's a chasm fixed and no one is going to cross from here to there. When you pass from this life to the next life, your eternity is set. It's why the book of Revelation ends with one of the strangest verses that you'll come across in the whole Bible. I remember reading this verse as a child just puzzling over why God would say something like this. Revelation 22. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. And I thought, why would God say that? Are you just supposed to keep sinning? I couldn't put it all together. But look at the back half of the verse. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And think about where this comes in the Bible. It comes in the very last chapter when the final separation has been made righteous wicked sheep goats believers unbelievers and that's it there'll be no crossing there'll be no sneaking across the wicked the unrighteous continue there's no repentance in hell the holy the pure continue in the presence of the Lord It's a final separation. Lastly, number five, witnessing or experiencing a miracle will not change your heart. We'll go through this quickly. Verse 28, the rich man says, send someone back, Abraham, because I have five brothers. He knows them. They're wicked just like he is. He says, send someone back from the dead to warn them. Verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. They have what Moses wrote. They have what the prophets wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Got Moses, got the prophets. It's the bookends, the beginning and the end. They've got the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures. Verse 30, he argues, I'm right, you're wrong. Send someone back. Verse 31, Abraham says, they will not listen Even if someone comes back from the dead, if they won't listen to the Scriptures. 
You understand this parable flies in the face of dozens of books that have been published in the last 20 years about people saying that they died, they went to heaven, they went to hell, they went somewhere, they talked to God, God sent them back, and God sent them back to warn everyone. And if you would only buy my book for $15 and read this warning, then you'll get serious about your spiritual life. All the while, Father Abraham says, if they're not going to listen, to the scriptures, they're not going to listen even if somebody comes back from the dead. You and I think that if we could just see a miracle, we would really believe. If we could just experience the supernatural directly, our faith would really be strong. This parable says that experiencing or witnessing a miracle will not change your heart, which begs the question, how can our hearts be changed? And it brings us to the last question that we want to ask. Why does this parable or what does this parable teach us about salvation? Very simply, The Word of God can transform our hearts and save us from the horror of hell. This book, the story in this book, the truth in this book, the promises of this book, this book is a living and active book. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and it has the power. The truth in this book has the power to change your heart. That's what Jesus is warning the Pharisees about. The Pharisees want to play games with the Scriptures. And Jesus wants them to be done with the games, to be done with the love of money, to be done with the ego, to be done with all of that stuff, and to actually listen to Moses and the prophets. Listen to what Moses said. He said the offspring of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head. Listen to what the prophet said. The prophet said that a servant would come who would suffer and die for the sins of God's people. The prophet Micah says he would be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Zechariah says he would be lifted up for all to see. That his side would be pierced. Listen. The the prophet Daniel says that iniquity will be dealt with in a single day. Listen to Moses and the prophets. They don't want to listen. They want to play games with the Word of God. When he says Moses and the prophets, you understand that was the entirety of the Scriptures at the time Jesus told this parable. There was no New Testament. Hadn't been written yet. So if he told the parable today, I think what he would say is, listen to Moses and the prophets and the Gospels and the epistles and Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, table of contents to the maps, all of it. Listen to it. A miracle is not going to change your heart. Money is not going to get you in. Neither is learning. Neither is religious activity. But this book has the power to change your heart. I've given you these verses. You can read these on your own. Romans 1 says, The good news of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. 2 Corinthians 4, the God who spoke with words, light into existence, will speak 
light into our hearts through the good news about Jesus Christ. Hebrews, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. James 1 and 1 Peter both talk about how we are born again by the power of God's Word. The truth of this book, the story of this book, it's very simple. This book. It's a story about a good God. A good God who created people to live in relationship with Him. And those people, us, decided that we wanted to chart our own course. We didn't want to listen to the good creator God. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. We sinned. That sin brought separation between us and God. And the good God in his grace, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his patience made a promise that someday he would send someone to save us. And in the fullness of time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, born to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4. Jesus laid down his life and he took the punishment that our sin deserved. He took hell for his people so that his people could be brought into God's family. We read this from John. We sang it at the beginning of the service as children. God's children. There's some serious stuff in this parable about hell. It's not the only thing that Jesus says about hell. There's a lot in the New Testament that's very serious about hell. But this book isn't primarily a story about hell. It's primarily a story about the good God and what he's done to save his people. To bring the righteous into his kingdom. Not those who obey better than others. But those who, like Abraham, will believe the Lord will believe the good news about Jesus Christ and have his righteousness credited to their account. The people who do that, the people whose heart is changed by the word of God, have nothing to fear in hell.